Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. Um, studying commerce and science. Um, yeah, please join me as we read the Bible today, reading from Ecclesiastes um, chapter 11, verse 7, to chapter 12, verse 14, so to the end. Um, verse 7 of chapter 11. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors in the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Hi there, welcome to the Bible Talks. Nice to see you. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors with Canvas Bible Study. And hasn't Ecclesiastes been great? It's been really pushing me to think hard, and I hope it's been pushing you to think hard. Let's pray for God to help us think hard this one last time on the book of Ecclesiastes as we finish the book today. Please pray with me. Our Father, we're really thankful for this book that has really made us think hard about what our world is all about. And we thank you that uh, you have challenged us to... Uh, leave behind simple thinking and to think a little bit more about how this book fits into the whole Bible. Please teach us again today. Please help us to understand more about life in our world, in your world, uh, under the Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the history of literature, there have been some really great last lines. They do votes on these kind of things, you know, the best last lines ever written, that kind of thing. Uh, Some of the classic books actually come to their conclusion with classic lines. So I thought I'd read to you 
from some of the best last lines in history. Firstly, from Animal Farm by George Orwell. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. It's great, isn't it? Great last line. Uh, from the Charles Dickens classic, A Tale of Two Cities, as Sidney Carton prepares to give his life in the place of his friend, the last line is this. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Pretty good line. From Wild Swans by Jung Chang. As I left China, farther and farther behind, I looked out of the window and saw a great universe beyond the plain's silver wing. I took one more glance over my past life, then turned to the future. I was eager to embrace the world. It's a great line, isn't it? Great lines. And from that pretty twisted novel by Fyodor Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, this line. But that is the beginning of a new story. The story of the gradual renewal of a man, the story of his gradual regeneration, of his passing from one world into another, of his initiation into a new unknown life. That might be the subject of a new story, but our present story has ended, and it ends in a pretty dark place. And I think you'll be able to guess this last classic last line and where it's from. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. <laughs> All was well. It's a great last line again from J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. A really great closing line kind of sums up the book in one or two sentences. A really great last line says a lot in those few precious words. A really great last line evokes the memory of everything you've read in the book so far as it comes to a close. So as we come to the, the close of the book of Ecclesiastes, what do you think of the closing lines? Let me read them to you again, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do you think those last two verses sum up the book of Ecclesiastes very well? Fear God, keep his commandments, because God will soon bring every deed to judgment. What do those last two lines say about this book? Do they sum up the book of Ecclesiastes appropriately, do you think? And if they are a good conclusion to the book, how do they leave you feeling? Do they fill you with hope or despair? Do these lines inspire you to wiser living or do they leave you muttering something that sounds like meaningless, vanity? It's all empty. Well, we come today to our last section of Ecclesiastes. This book has held out the hope of wisdom to us. Has it delivered? This book has promised much in the search for wisdom. Have you found it? We've got lots of loose ends to tie up as we finish the book today. So let's get straight into it. We're at point one. So you are a young whippersnapper. And let's have a look at chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Oh, it's good to be alive, isn't it? It's good to be alive. You'd agree, wouldn't you? Good to be alive, better than the alternative. Yeah? Yep. The light of life is certainly better than the alternative. 
The darkness of death will enfold you for a long time. So the teacher tells his readers to enjoy and rejoice in every year that God gives. Because when the lights go out, the teacher says, all is vanity, all is empty. So rejoice, young whippersnapper, that you are further away from the darkness of death, well, further away than I am at least. Rejoice! Uh, Have a look at chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Wisdom teaching in the Bible is often aimed at the young. It's interesting, isn't it? Perhaps youth is the age where you have the most to learn. Perhaps youth is the time when you need to start making good, wise decisions that lay down a good foundation for the rest of your life. But the upshot of all this is that right now you're in the right zone to learn wisdom. You are in the right place right now to lay down wise foundations for the rest of your life. Now is the moment for you to work out how to live wisely in God's world. And the teacher's advice in verse 9 is that you might walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that's a good idea? Uh, You know your own heart. You know what your eyes are like. Do you think it's a good idea to walk in their ways? I thought you might like to chat about this with the person next to you and see what they think. Here's the question on screen. Do you think walking in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes is a good thing? Do you want to have a quick chat with the person next to you? Just 30 seconds. See what they think. Go for it. Interesting question. Interesting question, particularly... When you think about what Jesus says about hearts and eyes in the New Testament, let me take you to uh, something of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, firstly about hearts. And Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Ooh, walk in the way of your heart. All right, what about the eyes? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, the Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So why would the teacher tell young men in particular to follow their hearts and be led by their eyes? Does that seem like a good idea? But I wonder whether that's where wisdom comes into, into play. A little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something else about eyes. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus seems to be saying that your eyes can lead you well or your eyes can lead you badly. And I guess that hearts could do the same. If you are going to walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, you want a wise heart and eyes that are looking at the right things. Perhaps that's why the teacher inserts that little warning straight after eyes and hearts. He says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. These verses are about rejoicing in life while you are young. But it's interesting. He kind of says rejoice in a way that remembers that God is your judge. Judgment is clear, but that doesn't mean no rejoicing. But look where he goes next, verse 10. 
Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The book of Ecclesiastes has reminded us that life in this world can be fairly vexing. But the teacher says, you are young. Don't focus on the vexation, the frustration, the pain. Let the joy of your youth distract you from the vexation and pain. Put it behind you. Put it out of your, out of your way, out of your sight. Do you think it can work? Can you ignore the vexation and the, and the pain and try to just live out the joy of youth? It's not easy, is it? You can see why the teacher even says at the end there, youth and the dawn of life is vanity, empty, meaningless. Even youth can't conquer this vanity. Last week, Charlie asked a very good question on the feedback slips. I thought I'd put it up on the screen at this point because it relates to what we're talking about. Charlie asked, the author's advice of eat, drink and be merry, although it is not wisdom from scripture. So what he means is the author hasn't taken that as wisdom out of the previous scriptures that he was reading. Charlie says, how is it words of wisdom and in the Bible? Should Christians seek to do this if they have the capacity to do it? Or are we advised against it? Eat, drink and be merry? <laughs> Would it be good advice for you? And we're at, we're at a similar section here, aren't we? I've picked up Charlie's question here because we have a similar section. Should you follow the teacher's advice here and just forget about the pain and the vexation of life in this world and follow your eyes, follow your heart in just living out the joy of youth? It's almost hard to tell if that would be a good idea or not, isn't it? Is the teacher recommending that course of action as the wisest possible way to live? Or is it just a good way to live in denial? To try to forget the vanity and meaninglessness of a world where life is frustrating and hard and where the lights will soon fade out into death? I suspect that's a hard question to answer. But as we work through today's passage, I think we will see again and again that a wise youth living in 2019 needs to listen to Ecclesiastes but needs to learn from more than just Ecclesiastes in the Bible about how to live wisely in this vexing and painful world. This book has been a really good challenge for us to read because it's challenged us, again, it's challenged us out of our simple reading and, and applying without thinking. We've had to work harder on this book, haven't we? And that's been good for us. Rather than just rip verses out of context, put them up on our wall and live by them as universal truths, we've had to think about how Ecclesiastes applies to lives lived in 2019. That's been good for us. But speaking of vexing and painful, we're at point two. Point two, you will soon be old and crusty. And let's have a look at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. While you have those days of your youth, now is the time to remember your creator. What do you think it means to remember your creator? It's, we kind of just take it for granted, but I want to push in a little bit. What does it mean to remember your creator? Here's another opportunity to have a chat with the person next to you. I'll put the question on the screen. What do you think it means to remember your creator? 30 seconds. See what the person next to you thinks. Go for it. Okay, can I collect some answers? I'd love to know what you think. Uh, who wants to get us started? Rosie. 
Celebrating, that's a good start. Celebrating your creator and his creation. Fearing the creator. Fearing the creator. We've, we've seen a lot about fearing God in, uh, in this book. And it's a good thing to do. Excellent. Others? Yeah. Don't forget to ring your mum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, up the back. Ah, oh, kids' song, yeah, yeah. Colin's song. Yeah, okay. Excellent. We're on the right track. Stop singing, stop singing. We're on the right track. Excellent. I, I, I think it means something like pay attention to your creator. Pay attention to your creator. What, what, but what's interesting about this passage and this particular command is the distance in it. See, it's actually quite distant like a lot of what we're seeing between the relationship of the teacher and his God in Ecclesiastes. Let me demonstrate the distance by showing you a fairly typical remember kind of verse from the Old Testament. This one's from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. There's a lot of remember statements in the Old Testament. This one, um, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This verse is different, isn't it? It's not just remember your creator, it's remember that the Lord your God has saved you, has, has acted in history to look after you. You're remembering something very good that your, your God has done for you, not just the distant creator, if you like. But there's even more closeness in this verse. See there, Lord, oh, we, sorry, <laughs> um, Lord there is written in small caps. Now, you might notice that in your Bible, that Lord is often written in small caps, all small caps, and it? It's actually code for something important, code for something really important. You might remember back in, um, in the early chapters of Exodus when God revealed himself to Moses. He spoke his kind of personal name and it's something like Yahweh, if you were to pronounce it. And God often revealed himself in that way to his people Israel throughout the Old Testament. Now the Israelites thought that personal name of God was so holy that they would not even say it aloud. And they would not even write it in their scriptures. So they would code it. They coded it with just the four consonants of the word. And so we think it's something like Yahweh, but we really actually can't know for sure because we've never seen the vowels. And when that, that personal name of God is translated into English, our Bibles translate it as Lord all in small caps. So that is the personal name of Israel's personal God. And nearly all the time when Israel is encouraged to remember their God, they're encouraged to remember Yahweh, their personal God. Not the distant creator, but Israel's personal God who has shown his love for his people by saving them out of, out of Egypt in this case and out of many other places throughout the Old Testament. And so remember your creator, it's much less personal, it's much less relational. It's just another reminder to us that the teacher has limited himself in his quest to find wisdom. He's looking under the sun at just what he can observe with his own eyes. And in a sense, he has cut himself off from the rest of the Israelite scriptures that show Yahweh's acts of salvation very clearly. But the teacher is not completely wrong, is he? Your youth is a good time to remember your creator God, to pay attention to him, to learn more from his scriptures, not just from Ecclesiastes, but from all of his scriptures, to learn that he is not just your creator, but he also can be your redeemer, your saviour, 
the one who can redeem you out of the judgment that you actually deserve for your sin, your rebellion against him, and redeem you into eternal life. Now is the time to pay attention to your God. Now is the time to set a good foundation for your life with Yahweh. And so my little challenge to you would be, what are you actually going to do for the Lord in the best years of your life? that you're pretty much entering right now. And I've got that challenge because old age is coming. It's advancing at you even now and it doesn't look like much fun. Let's read about it. Verses 1 to 5. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. This is beautiful poetry. And chances are you haven't yet seen just how beautiful and clever it is. What starts out as a fairly literal description of old age quickly becomes a series of very clever metaphors. Let me walk you through them pretty briskly so that you see the beauty in this poetry. First, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, what normally returns after the rain? The sun normally returns after the rain, right? Old age, it's like the clouds returning after the rain. That's not, it's not much fun. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, keepers of the house, the hands, tremble. The strong men are bent, The muscles aren't what they used to be. The grinders cease because they are few. Exactly. Teeth. It's hard to chew when you've lost most of your teeth. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. Are you seeing it? Yeah. It's it's your eyesight going. The eyesight is not what it used to be. And the doors on the street are shut. I hope that doesn't mean what I think it means, but kids, keep eating your fibre. That's all I've got to say. When the sound of the grinding is low, the hearing isn't as good as it used to be. But you, you, the, your hearing isn't great, but you're still up at the sound of the first bird. You wake up with the first bird, not because you, you hear the first bird, but because you can't sleep as well as you once could. Um, and yet the, the daughters of song are brought low. I think it's again a hearing issue. The volume's gone down. You just can't hear it. You are afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. It's anxiety, isn't it? You're more anxious about heights, about about getting mugged as you age. The almond tree blossoms. That is about the only thing there that sounds good. Almond tree, brilliant white flowers, except when you realise it's talking about your hair. Not so good. The grasshopper drags himself along and desire fails. Again, I hope that doesn't mean what I think it means, but I understand you can get tablets that can even help you with that problem. So moving on straight away. Some of you will get it later this afternoon when I'm not around and that'll be good. It's beautiful poetic imagery about an ageing process that is not very beautiful. 
And that aging process transitions into the even less beautiful thing of death. Now this poem, however, is so beautiful that it even has beautiful images for death. Look at them in verses 6 to 8. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Those images of death, they're, they're, they're too beautiful for death, but they are images of death nonetheless. And they are the last words the teacher writes in this book. From verse 9, we return to the narrator who completes the book. But verses 6 to 8 are the teacher's great last words in his search for meaning. They are almost like his obituary, aren't they? He has tried to find wisdom without referencing God's scriptures and in the end, death has defeated him. It's easy to see why death is humanity's greatest fear, isn't it? You know, people do surveys about our greatest fears and death nearly always comes number one on the list. Surprisingly, sometimes death is beaten out of number one place by anyone? Public speaking. Now, the irony there has been pointed out by the comedian Jerry Seinfeld, as only he can. He says, that means if that's true, at the funeral, most people would rather be in the box than giving the eulogy. (laughs) Beautiful, isn't it? Um, If your worldview doesn't have a good solution to the problem of death, then you need a new worldview. The teacher knows that death is coming for every one of us, but he hints at something beyond death, something spiritual about a person. In verse 7, he acknowledges that the spirit returns to God somehow. But he has a very limited view because he has limited himself to just what he can observe with his own eyes in the world under the sun. So let's have a think about Ecclesiastes and wisdom. We're at point three, Ecclesiastes and wisdom. As the narrator steps back into the action, he reminds us of what the teacher set out to do and why he was well qualified to do it. Verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly, he wrote, words of truth. The narrator is reminding us that the teacher is the smartest guy in the room. He was wise, we're told. He could teach people knowledge, we're told. And he weighed and studied and arranged proverbs like a skilled scientist would. The smartest guy in the room took on the challenge of trying to work out how to live wisely in this frustrating world. Do you think he succeeded in his task? (laughs) It's interesting. I think you might be right. Well, it's interesting, but hold that thought for a moment. Uh, It's interesting. The narrator gives us a little hint. The narrator tells us that he sought to find words of delight. Now, this is the end of the book. This is the finish of the thesis. The narrator has the finished product, the finished thesis in front of him and he says he sought to find words of delight. Isn't that a little bit like your supervisor, your PhD supervisor, your thesis supervisor saying to their colleagues in the staff room, hey, that student, they tried to prove X, Y, Z. 
damning you with faint praise. He sought to find words of life. Do you think the teacher achieved what he set out to achieve? This is your last opportunity to have a chat with the person next to you in the whole Ecclesiastes series, and it's a good one to think about as we finish up. Do you think the teacher achieved what he set out to achieve? 30 seconds, go for it. Okay, let's have a think about it together. Let's wrap this up and take it home. We've got 15 minutes to do that. Let's do it. I think the teacher truly did seek to find words of delight. And he has written truly what he found. But he has told us a number of times throughout the book what he couldn't find. Let's uh, just a very quick tour of the book, just three passages I'd like to take you back to on this issue. Firstly, chapter 1, verse 17. If you want to just flick back there for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 17, the teacher says, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. It's a trying to catch wind, which is a tough thing to do if you've ever tried. It's not even worth trying, is it? Flick forward a little bit further to Ecclesiastes 7, 23 to 24. Ecclesiastes 7, 23 to 24. He says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And then chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I think the teacher has agreed that he could not find what he was looking for. He has written words of truth, but his last words of truth are very telling. They are verse 8 of chapter 12, the last words he wrote. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So as a result, what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes is words that keep us moving forward. Remember, that's what goads do to cows. Way back in talk one of this series, Tim was preaching and he taught us that a goad is an old-fashioned cattle prod. A goad, a stick with a nail in it that helps the cows to keep moving along, to keep moving forward. And that's exactly what we see in verses 11 to 12. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I think when I came to start studying Ecclesiastes this year, I thought I was going to find lots of wisdom in this book. Did you? The more we've looked at Ecclesiastes, the more we've seen that this is a book about the search for wisdom, not about the finished product. This book reminds us of why we need to learn wisdom because we live in a frustratingly crooked world where life is hard and death is always stalking a step closer. This book is a very important book of the Bible, very important, but not to give us the finished product of wisdom, more to show us the search and in many ways to show us the futility or the vanity of searching for wisdom in the wrong place or more particularly by the wrong method. 
ultimate wisdom cannot be found by simply observing what is around you under the sun. And verse 12. Verse 12 is not saying don't look anywhere beyond this book. Don't look at the rest of scripture for wisdom. It's not saying that. Verse 12 is saying, I think, that if the smartest guy in the room couldn't find wisdom by observing the world and making this book, don't bother trying to make your own book. Don't bother trying to conduct the same search in a similar way. The method is flawed. Other similar books will face the same problem. We simply can't work wisdom out by our own powers of observation when all we can see is what is under the sun. So the words of this book are a good goad for us to keep us moving forward in our search for wisdom about life in this world. And that brings us again to those last words of the book. We're at point four, the end of the matter. Verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We've seen it again and again that the teacher understands that God will bring every deed to judgment. So even his encouragement to eat, drink and be merry is tempered by the fact that every deed will be judged. The judgment of God is a reality that we all need to respond to. The rest of the Bible just keeps making that clear that the God who made us is the God who will judge us one day. So the wise way to live in this frustrating world must be to work out how you can be safe in that judgment. This is a really helpful end point for the teacher to get us to, isn't it? The wise person lives wisely in the light of the coming judgment. The foolish person lives as though there will be no coming judgment. But if there is no judgment, then there is no justice. And then if there is no justice, then this world is even more meaningless and vain than the teacher has seen for himself in Ecclesiastes. But because God will bring judgment, there will be ultimate justice. And that is a good thing. But how can you make yourself safe on that day of judgment? Well, the teacher heads in the right direction on this one, but he can't get the ultimate answer because the ultimate answer was only revealed later in history in the coming of the Lord Jesus. The teacher's advice was fear God and keep his commandments. That is the start of the answer. But even in the Old Testament, wise Israelites knew that they could not fear God and keep his commandments well enough to pass his judgment. Even in the Old Testament, wise Israelites recognised that their, commanding, their commandment keeping failures. They recognised that they were strugglers, failures at commandment keeping. They struggled to fear God rightly. They struggled to obey his commandments rightly. And that makes them just like you and me, doesn't it? You see, even when you want to fear God and keep his commandments, you will still fail. When we looked at this passage briefly, in, back in talk one, Tim was preaching right at the start of this term. Uh, Tim talked about what it means to fear God, and he, I think he used the illustration of police. You know, if, if, you, if you are not breaking the law, you kind of fear police just reverently. You, you know, they're, they're, they're important. They're, but it's not a kind of fear of punishment, because you're not breaking the law. But if you are breaking the law, then you have that panic fear of punishment, and you should. And Tim described things that way, uh, that, uh, fearing the Lord. 
A couple of weeks ago, my wife got pulled over by the police. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Now, while she was driving, she didn't think she was doing anything wrong, but you know what happens when the lights go on behind you and the siren? I hope, no, I, I don't know. Who would know what happens when the light? She, <laughs> she, um, she pulled over and she immediately looked at the speedo, you know, okay, was I speeding? Did, you know, and then tries to think, okay, did I drive through a stop sign? You, you, the panic is going through you. The police officer pulls the patrol car over behind her, gets out of the car, walks towards the driver's window. Can you imagine how my wife felt when she realised that the police officer was one of our CBS students? <laughs> who, is, who is studying criminology part-time while working full-time as a cop. And then, as he explained that he was having a quiet day, He'd spotted her, he knows her, he'd spotted her and our daughter, Laura, driving in the car. He was a bit lonely, so he thought he'd just pull her over to say hello. <laughs> True story. Um, I'm very thankful that she didn't punch Sam out, because uh, that would be a crime, I'm sure. I'm sure you'd have to get arrested for that one. But now that Jen has the fear of police in her from that little event, do you think she will live on in that fear of the police and never again break a driving law? No way. She's going to break driving laws. Even if she fears the police, she's going to break those driving laws. And you know what? I reckon when it happens, Sam's going to be there, <laughs> ready to get her. Oh, yeah, she's brave. <laughs> exactly. Even in, even, in God's old, even in the Old Testament, God's people who wanted to fear him and wanted to keep his commandments, failed. And they realised that they were going to need forgiveness if they were going to pass God's judgement. The rest of the Old Testament shows us that God is the kind of God who wants to forgive his people. The Old Testament keeps showing us Israel's failure to fear God rightly and to keep his commandments. And yet we keep seeing the patience of God and the grace of God in extending forgiveness and offering his rebellious people another opportunity, another chance to return into relationship with him. The Old Testament shows us that God is a just judge, that he must punish sin. But it also shows us his beautiful, gracious, forgiving character towards his people. How can God be just and forgive people? That's the big question that the Old Testament can't answer. And that's the question that goads us forward. We keep moving forward. How can God be the just judge and possibly forgive people who deserve judgment? The mechanism of justice and forgiveness is only revealed as the Lord Jesus comes into the world. You see, God can't just sweep my sin under the carpet as though it doesn't matter. My sin does matter because my sin has hurt people, people like you. And my sin has wronged people, people like you, and wronged God. I recognise that my sin deserves judgement, but I want God to forgive me. How can we have forgiveness and justice? The beautiful answer to that question comes in the Gospel through the Lord Jesus. The one man who did fear God and keep his commandments as we should have. So therefore, he is the only man who's ever lived who didn't deserve God's judgment. But at the cross, Jesus willingly stepped in and sacrificed his own life for the sins of other people. 
taking the judgment of death that the sins of other people deserved so that those other people could be forgiven by God and be safe on judgment day. At the cross, sin is judged and at the cross, forgiveness is made possible for sinners. That's what the cross is all about. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. He is the key to wisdom now. Jesus has changed everything for God's people. So the way to fear God and keep his commandments today is all about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and then seeking to live obediently under his lordship. Living wisely in the light of God's judgment today is all about Jesus. It's all about trusting Jesus and serving Jesus, the only one who could truly fear God and keep his commandments. And so I want to encourage you as we finish up, make sure you let the book of Ecclesiastes push you towards Jesus because he is the only place where you can truly live a wise life in this frustratingly crooked world. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this book of Ecclesiastes and the way you've made us think so much about our world and the frustrations and vexations of life in our world. And we thank you, Father, that the book of Ecclesiastes has been like that goad pushing us to look to the ultimate wisdom that has come with the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much that you've sent a saviour who could fear you and obey your commandments and yet willingly stepped in and took the punishment for sin in our place. Please help us to live wisely by trusting him, serving him and seeking to live under his lordship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.